Good morning, Trinity. Yes, uh, thank you, Pastor David, for that wonderful introduction, and I'm so excited to be here this morning. There's nothing like being at home here at my home church at Trinity and to be with the, my church family. So good morning. Thank you for having me. And as Pastor David did mention, we're about to kick off um, this morning our new series on the good news. And the good news is the gospel, right? And I'm really excited about this. And um, today's message is going to be about the uniqueness of the gospel. Uh, but before we get into it, I actually just want to start by sharing a quick story that's going to coincide with the message today. So it says that a man died and, goes, and went to heaven. And Peter, the disciple, met this man at the pearly gates and says, Here's this, this is how it's going to work. You need to get 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I'll give you a certain number of points for each good deed. And depending on how good it was, and if you get to 100 points, you get to come in. The man says, okay. I was married to the same woman for 50 years. I was faithful, never cheated on her, and loved her deeply. That's wonderful, says Peter. That's worth two points. Only two points, the man says. Well, what about this? I attended church faithfully, and I supported the ministry with my tithes and my service. That's terrific, Peter says. Good for you. That's worth a point. One point, the guy says, come on. Okay, how about this one? I started a soup kitchen in my community, and I also worked in a shelter that helped homeless veterans. Peter says, that's fantastic. Good for you. You get two more points. Two points. All right, the guy at this point, he's beside himself. He says, at this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. And Peter says, that's the right answer. 100 points. Come on in. See, the truth of the matter is many people think of heaven, right, and a relationship with God as a point system. And there's a lot of different views and understandings about heaven. Um, there was a poll uh, that was recently done with the American public a few years ago, and 80% of the people polled actually do believe in heaven. And of those, 84% believe that a good person can go to heaven. 69% believe that both Christians and non-Christians will go to heaven. 82% of those people that believe in heaven believe they are going to heaven. And only 2%, surprise, surprise, thought that they were going to hell. Right? Most people don't think that. Most people think, if I'm a good enough person, if I do enough good deeds, I'm going to get into heaven. And that's what sets the gospel, the good news, the Christian faith apart from all other religions and belief systems, is that it's not about a point system. It's not our way of earning there. It's, it's by grace. You see, the exclusivity of the Christian faith is not a... <clears throat> is not a popular claim in our culture. We are told we should consider all religions equally valid. But the question should not be whether Jesus' claims are tolerant or exclusive, but if they're true. If Jesus' claims are true, then they are the most hopeful words ever spoken. And get this, they're the most inclusive. They provide us an opportunity to be saved, and this opportunity is available to everyone. Of all the beliefs... Throughout all of mankind, whether they're religious, political, or philosophical, Christianity, including its Old Testament foundation, is based upon historical acts and facts. Other religions are centered in the ethical and religious teaching of their founders, but Christianity is built on the great events of both the creation 
and redemption. For instance, the Muslim faith is based on the teachings of Muhammad. Buddhism is based on the teachings of Buddha. Confucianism on the teachings of Confucius. Mormonism on the teachings of Joseph Smith. Scientology on the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard. Not one of these is based on the observation of historical data or facts, but on the teachings of, and revelations of just mere men, and in all of these cases, actually just one man's opinion. Christianity, however, is founded not on what Jesus taught, but on who Jesus was and what he accomplished. Of course, as Christians, we stand firmly on his teachings. No one ever spoke and taught like Jesus. But ultimately, the value of what he said was dependent on who he was and what he did. And the abundance of historical evidence authenticated his words. This gave the teachings of Christ's authority and placed them alone in a category of absolute truth. You see, all other beliefs are based on the teachings and ideas of those who were nothing more than just mere men. No matter how brilliant, charismatic, or powerful they may be, there is no guarantee of their objectivity, accuracy, or ultimate ability to deliver what they promised. The uniqueness of the gospel, the good news, however, ultimately depends on the uniqueness of its central figure, our Lord Jesus Christ. Some try to downplay Christ as among one of many authentic religious leaders. But Jesus can't be just one of many. It doesn't work. Either he is who he said he is, and history demonstrates him to be, or the truth of the matter is, right, he's no different than the man that thinks he's a cat. And there's a lot of those men out there today, right? Either he was Jesus, he was God himself, or he was a crazy man. His uniqueness is so great that no one, absolutely no one, can compare him with him and if he is who he says he is. So let's take a few minutes right now to look at the other faiths and the other religions and see, you know, who they thought and see Jesus was. We'll start with the Hindus, and they believe Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, and is a god. But he was just one of many gods. Buddhists believe Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher, but that's it. He's not the son of God. New Age philosophy says he, believers maintain Jesus was a wise, moral teacher, but just a mere man who attained spiritual enlightenment. Mormons believe Jesus was born of the Father, just like all spirit children. God is his Father in the same way he's a Father to all. Whatever immortality or godhood Jesus possesses, they are inherited attributes and powers. He does not share the same eternal nature as the Father. Therefore, Jesus is not God. He's just a created being. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was and is and always will be beneath Jehovah and that Christ and God are not co-equal. Therefore, Jesus is not equal with God. Scientology believes that Jesus was just another moral teacher among many. So therefore, he was nothing more than a wise teacher. And the last two we're going to look at are referred to as the Abrahamic religions. And the first one being the Jews who are the offspring of Isaac. And they believe Jesus was Mary's son, was a teacher, a rabbi, had many disciples, was, <clears throat> was respected, performed miracles, claimed to be the Messiah, and was crucified on the cross. But Jesus, they say, isn't the Messiah, and he didn't rise from the dead. 
And then lastly, we have the offspring of Ishmael, Abraham's other son, and they're the Muslims. And they believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, is to be revered and respected, was a prophet, a wise teacher who worked miracles, ascended to heaven, and actually, believe it or not, they do believe he will come again. But they believe he's just a, a prophet. Actually, it's blasphemous in their religion to call him the son of God. You see, in every religion and philosophy, there is a common theme here. Jesus is viewed as wise, enlightened, a prophet even, and in some cases, actually more than just a man. But in every case, and get this, Jesus is not the son of God. Every religion strips Jesus of his deity. And this is what makes Christianity and the gospel unique. The Christian faith recognizes Jesus to be who he says he is. Not only that, but the Christian faith recognizes the historical facts that Jesus backed up what he claimed by doing what? Rising from the dead. So what exactly separates Christianity and the gospel from other religions? I'm going to share quickly um, a pers uh, personal testimony here of um, the first time in my life that I'll never forget where I actually came across this realization. Um, my name is Rashad, and I get looks all the time when I say Rashad because people aren't expecting that to be my name, but it's actually an Arab name. My father is Palestinian. He's from Jerusalem, and he's a Muslim, actually. And, and my mother is a Christian, and they, they separated and got divorced when I was five years old, mainly over religious differences. So growing up as a child, um, I was very confused about God. Uh, one Sunday, I would go to church, and I'd go to Sunday school and learn about Jesus and the Bible. And, and then the next Sunday, I'd go to the mosque, which is the Muslim's holy place of worship, right? And I'd learn about Allah, their God, and, and their beliefs. And, and I did this for many years. And then by the time I was nine, I'll never forget this day. I was at the mosque, and it was their time of prayer. And they were praying, not because they wanted to, but because it was that time of day, and they have, to, they have only certain times that they can pray. And I remember looking around, and I'll never forget this. I remember looking at everyone and saying, everyone here is praying out of a fear and a duty and an obligation right now. And I remember the week prior, looking back at going to church and the congregation, and I saw the, a, a stark and vast difference, right? I remember at church, when I walked in, I saw people worshiping God, not out of duty and obligation, but out of a love and a desire to. And at that moment, I realized that there was something different. I didn't, I didn't understand everything about God, but I understood that I wasn't a Muslim. I was like, there's, just, there's, not some, there's something special to the Christian faith and I'll never forget that. What I really came to know that day without knowing the verbiage or the word for it was I had a realization of what the law really is. And um, we're going to go over a few um, things here that specifically separates the gospel from other religions. Number one here, every other religion teaches us to earn our way to God. You see, all religions give us a list of do's and don'ts. Some religions call them laws or pillars. These are things that you do in hopes of getting into heaven. World religions, right, what do they do? They say, do, do, do. But what does Christ say? Christ says, done. It is finished. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God came to us. Jesus died for us before we did a thing for him. God didn't wait for us to get things right before he sent his son to die. In fact, God sent his son because he knew we could never get things right apart from Jesus. The second thing 
that separates the gospel from other religions and philosophies is that other religions have systems of rules to appease their gods. Christianity is a relationship with God. You see, we don't have to appease God to get his favor. He already showed us his love by sending Jesus to die on a cross in our place for our sins. The separation between us and God was appeased, and we didn't have to do anything except for what? Believe. And not only that, but no other religion is God personal. The God of other religions are out of reach and unattainable. Your job is to do your best to appease them, and hopefully, right, fingers crossed, it's good enough. Uh, uh, unfortunately, when I was nine years old, I didn't surrender my life over to the Lord. But at 24, when I hit a rock-bottom moment of my life and um, I had to cry out to the Lord, I was in desperate need of a Savior. And um, I turned my life over to God, and I became a Christian. And at uh, 24, I had a conversation with my father to this day that um, is probably one of the, the saddest things I've ever heard another man say. And that conversation went like this. After I told him I was a Christian, he told me that he had to disown me, that I couldn't be his son. And, and that's, not, that's not what was the most heartbreaking thing I've ever heard, because for many years, I always expected that. But what he said to me after, I'll never forget. He goes, I'm going to have to go before Allah every day and pray for forgiveness that he won't send me to hell for your sins. And my heart broke at that moment because my father, who I love, I realized just in what bondage he was into the law, right? It, it actually went so far that it wasn't even about his own deeds at this point anymore. It was even the deeds of his son can affect his eternal fate. And the fact that he, ha like, it is so ingrained in him and he believes this with all of his heart, just I broke for him. And to this day, it was one of the saddest things that I've ever heard. Now, on the flip side of it, right, the gospel it's not sad. The gospel is what? Good news. The good news is that God so loved the world. John 3.16 is probably the, the most well-known scripture verse there is, right? Probably almost all of us here can, can say it word for word. And why is that? Because John 3.16, if there was one verse, is God's entire plan for redemption, the entire Bible, right? John 3.16 is the gospel message in one verse, and that is that God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever shall believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God loves us so deep and wants a relationship with us that he gave. He did what we could not do. God doesn't look for us to appease him, for he knows we can't. Romans 3.23 tells us, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what does God do with that? He takes matter into his own hands and has a perfect plan of redemption. And what that redemption is, is through the perfect life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus did what we could not do and took on our sins and bore them on a cross and defeated death by rising from the dead. All so that we might be in right standing with God and fulfill our purpose of why we were created in the first right place, right? And which is to have fellowship, to have a relationship with our creator and our heavenly father. And the third thing that makes Christianity and the gospel different from other religions, right? And this, this is the key to it all right here, is that no other religion has an empty tomb. This puts the gospel in an entire another stratosphere from anything else. 
You see, we are the only people that follow a leader who died and came back to life. Every other major religious leader is dead. People have been looking for Jesus for thousands of years, and they still haven't found his body. The tomb is empty, and the body is not hidden, and it will never be found. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew 28, Scripture confirms this when it says, He is not here, he is risen, just as he said. And this is the key. This is what separates the gospel from everything else. Jesus is risen. Jesus, unlike every other founder of every other religion, is alive today and at work in the life of every believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the proof that our faith, the Christian faith, that the gospel message is true. So this morning, we're going to look at real quickly here just what makes the gospel so unique. Um, Billy Graham once said, and I think this is perfect for today's message, he said, there are many religions in the world, but only one Christianity. For Christianity has a God who gave himself for mankind. World religions attempt to reach up to God. Christianity is God reaching down to man. So today we're going to look at a passage of scripture here that shows us the uniqueness of the gospel. And that comes from Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. And it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly uh, passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that is very own, eager to do what is good. So the first thing from this passage of Scripture we're going to look at is that the gospel gives us a unique grace. See, verse 11 states, For the grace of God appeared to, uh, that is offered for salvation to all people. And this is an example of God's amazing grace. What grace has brought is the opportunity for all to be rescued. Why did we all have a need for a Savior? Because we realize we can't save ourselves, right? People can't save themselves. But God's grace has brought salvation to a lost mankind. This grace appeared by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This salvation is by grace, and it's for all men who receive it. There is a universal need, and God provided a universal remedy for all believers, This means that God released his kindness and his uh, mercy to save all of mankind. He made an open display of his goodness. And this is available to all who want to receive it. And this was seen at Calvary's cross in the Son of God, bleeding and dying for guilty men. And this is unique because there's no other religion that has this, no other philosophy. There are no grace extended for other religions. In any other religion, in any other way, if you aren't good enough, you're just out of luck. The second thing that the gospel message is unique in is that it gives us a believer a unique life. Verse 12 says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see, the unique life of a redeemed man, transformed by the gospel, is one of a life that is saying no to ungodliness. A life that is moderate and balanced in all things. It's a self-controlled life. And 
this is probably something that we need to do on a daily basis, right? To look at ourselves and see, our, you know, is our life out of balance? Do we show self-control in some of these areas? Probably one of the, I mean, I'm gonna be the first to raise my hand on this is eating, right? Um, I struggle in that area. It's an area that I definitely can use some more self-control in. But there's other areas too that we can, you know, look and see, like, are we reflecting this unique balanced life of self and that exemplifies self-control? How about our spending? Right? How many of us are good stewards of the money that we do have? How many of us is that neighbor next door that's Amazon is showing up every single day with five packages, right? How about our speech? Are, uh, do we let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth? Are we uh, gossiping or slandering? You know, our hobbies. Hobbies are great things, but, you know, is everything in balance? Do we have self-control? Are we, you know, are we uh, the, the, the fisherman that loves and goes out there and we're spending 15, 20 hours, whatever it is a week and only five minutes in the word a day, right? So uh, the unique life of a believer is a self-controlled and balanced life. It's also uh, the unique life is for a born-again man is to be a righteous life, one that is both pleasing to God and to all of those around him. The Christian should be the most honest and fair businessman, right? He should be the most generous kind of person, the most compassionate of people, the most honorable of all men. The unique life of a saved man is to be a godly life. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 tells us, But godliness with contentment is great gain. A life that reflects to a dark world the light and image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Overall, the true Christian life, the unique life, is to be a life that is passionate to do good works. And get this, not because we have to, right, but because we want to. And this is called pursuing righteousness. The word pursue is the complete opposite of flee. If flee means running from, pursuing means running after. It means to be in pursuit, just like a hunter is in pursuit of his prey. Pursuing righteousness and holiness means to aim at God and draw near to him. Righteousness is not something we build up through good acts, but instead it's righteousness is a quality of character and a unique life developed in us through our relationship with God. The next thing we're going to look at is that the gospel gives a unique hope and glory to us. Verse 13 says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we are looking for the return of Christ. And that is our unique hope and glory. Although Paul doesn't go into the great uh, details of the event and, and how it will happen, believers should always be expecting for Jesus' return and live like those who are going to see him face to face. The word blessed in this scripture can mean happy or beneficial. Our hope is blessed in that Jesus' return will be amazing. It'll be a joyful experience for each believer in Christ. We'll be blessed beyond measure when we see Christ. And the trials of this life will be over. And we will see that as Romans 8.18 tells us, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The word hope isn't an uncertainty. It's not like saying, I hope this might happen, but rather it's a glad assurance that something will take place. You see, Jesus' return should motivate us as believers, right, to live godly in this ungodly world. The phrase, while we wait, in verse 13, is the key to make this happen. To be waiting means we live each day in a continual anticipation and expectancy with the conviction that Jesus could come at any time. 
And that hope becomes a transforming reality in this life, resulting in God being glorified through us. The blessed hope brings us joy and cheers us through trials and tribulations of this world. It should also cause us to stop and evaluate our thinking, our words, and our actions. The unique hope and glory of the gospel we have actually paves the way, right, for the unique life that we will live by the power of the gospel. Other religions and other philosophies, right, say Jesus is only a man. But in verse 13, Scripture declares he is a great God and Savior. Scripture tells us only a great God and Savior can save a soul. And what a unique hope that is. The next thing that the gospel is unique that gives us, it gives us a unique gift. And that gift is love. The first part of verse 14 says, who gave himself for us. You see, Scripture says there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. That's John 15, 13. And this is man, right, at his best. But Romans 5.10 tells us, but while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And that is God at his best. And it's a rare example, right, where one willingly dies for his enemies. The Lord gave himself for you and for me. This is the unique gift called love. And Jesus is saying, I will lay down my life so you can have life. In the Bible, there are four primary words that are used to describe this different kind of love. In the case of John 15 here, Jesus is using the word agape. And it's an unconditional love that can only come from God. You see, agape love is the highest form of love. Love isn't something God does. It is who he, it's who he is. He loves us, not because we deserve it or earn it, but because it's all he can do. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that the unique gift of love is different than what we can find anywhere else. He who gave himself for us. There is no greater love than that. The love that the world displays is conditional, right? You have to earn it. In every religion, you need to earn God's love and approval. And if you screw up, it's taken away. But Jesus' love of the gospel is unconditional. He gives us his love even when we don't deserve it. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. He gave up his life so we could have life. And the new life we do have is a unique life of the gospel given to us by a unique gift, which is love. At this time, I'm going to ask, invite Pastor Antonia to come on up. The last part of the gospel that we want to look at today, which is unique, is that the gospel is a unique work in people. The second part of verse 14 says, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The unique work here stated in verse 14 was to redeem and to purify and to purchase and to cleanse. Right When you buy a new set of kitchenware, you don't use them until you wash them first, right? They are first bought and then washed and cleansed. In the same way, that's what the Lord does with us. Not because we were great and wise, not because we're good, but because we have received by faith the good news of the gospel and we have been cleansed. 2 Timothy 2.21 tells us those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. 
The redeemed and the purified in verse 14 here tells us we are to be a unique people. Or in some translations, it actually says peculiar people. And some Christians are afraid of being unique or peculiar because they could possibly be talked about, right? This might have happened um, to you, viewed differently, or maybe even you've been criticized, right? But because a unique work has been done in us, Christians are a unique people. Perhaps some of your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers think you are distinctly different, odd, strange, maybe even peculiar. Some of the things we do as Christians, right, seems baffling to others. We keep a Sabbath, which can appear to be unnecessary or maybe lazy. Church can appear to be a waste of time to the unbelievers. In many cases, we pray about things before we act, which seems irresponsible and a bit wacky. We give at least 10% of our income, which seems totally crazy. We refer to the Bible as God's word, and we love Jesus, which inevitably marks us as unthinking and blind to the realities of life. Practices like the Sabbath, tithing, prayer, Bible study, and many other habits and patterns in the life of a Christian um, can seem bizarre, even incomprehensible to many who do not know Christ. But this is all a good thing because it's how people see us. Why? They see us like this and they have these opinions and thoughts about us because a unique work has been done in us and and made us a unique people. So in closing here, going back to man's religion and man's ways versus the gospel, religion is always man trying to reach up to God. The message of the gospel is unique because it is God reaching down to man. Religion is about what man has to do to be right with God. The gospel is about what God has already done to provide us the opportunity to be right with him. Religion says you must earn your salvation by doing good deeds or certain acts and not doing evil. The gospel says all we need to do is believe that Christ has already paid the price for the evil we have done. The Bible says we are all evil, we are all sinful in nature, and there's nothing we can do to earn or the right to be saved. The gospel says that God, in the form of Jesus Christ, stepped into our place and paid that awful price that had to be paid for us. He gave us a unique free gift of salvation if we choose to believe in Jesus. The Bible clearly states here, we can't be saved by abiding by the law. The law is just a list of rules. We can't be saved on our own efforts. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The unique difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ is just that. There's no checklist. There's no rules that we have to follow. It's all about our relationships, right? Starting first vertically and then horizontally. There's no traditions or rituals that you have to be practiced. Believe that Jesus Christ came to earth and died for your sins. Accept his free gift and let God help you to love him and to love others. And that's it. It's so simple. It sounds too good to be true. And it would be if there was no real power here. But I'm here to testify this morning that when you do this, the relationship with God is real. And the power of the gospel to change your life is there. 
Religion is empty, but in Christ there is power. In closing, 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Let us bow our heads in prayer. This morning, if maybe you've never given your life over to the Lord or maybe you want to rededicate your life, maybe if you know that you've been living by a checklist of rules and things and trying to appease God, I invite you this morning to say this prayer with me as we just surrender over our lives to the Lord. So Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your plan of redemption for all of us. We thank you for your free gift of salvation that you made available to anybody that you may believe, Lord. So right now, we acknowledge and praise you and thank you for the virgin birth of our Savior, the perfect life that he lived, the death that he experienced on the cross on our behalf, and the victory over death through his life and resurrection, Father God. And we thank you that in belief in the work of your Son, Lord, that we can be reunited with you. And we declare that we want to surrender our lives over to you and invite Jesus Christ into our hearts and into our minds, Father God. And we thank you that all of this is made available to us strictly based off of nothing we have done and based off of everything you have done. We love you, we praise you, and we honor you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.